Here we go. Roll Here video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I'm your host, Aaron Strand. Today, we are once again joined by Dr. Amy Abugo-Ongiri, Director of Ethnic Studies at the University of Portland and author of the book, Spectacular Blackness, The Cultural Politics of the Black Power Movement and the Search for a Black Aesthetic. All right, I'm just going to jump right in here. It's early 1971, and Melvin Van Peebles releases the soundtrack to Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song that you mentioned in the previous episode features uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, which was at this point unknown. It also features uh, Melvin himself with his distinct singing style. <laughs> um, so what was the res- was there any sort of response from the Black Arts Movement to the Sweet Sweetback soundtrack? No, I think as far as I know, um, that, that it kind of flew under the radar. Because there was kind of this tension between popular culture and what Black Arts Movement creators were trying to do. Um, So as far as I know, it kind of flew under the radar. Um, And he was sort of, again, reaching for a popular audience with that movie. So I'm not sure he would have, you know. Yeah. and But the movie, though, does it it is this it's this incredible explosion of like different forces that the Black Arts Movement is thinking about and kind of addressing, because on the one hand, as you mentioned previously, Sweet Sweetbacks is it's incredibly avant-garde, strange movie, um, but it's hugely popular, and it makes ten million dollars in the first few months. I mean, it's just mind blowing. What? So I have actually a couple quotes here that you mentioned in the book. You've got Lerone Bennett from Ebony Magazine. He calls it quote trivial and tasteless, neither revolutionary nor black. While you've got Huey Newton, who devotes an entire essay in the Black Panther newspaper to the film, and he calls it, quote, the first truly revolutionary Black film made, it helps put forth the ideas of what we must do to build community. What do you think was the cause of this polarization? Well, I mean, I think Lerone Bennett's quote, I don't, I'm not sure if I can say the rest of it, but I'm gonna like, he says, nobody ever fucked their way to freedom. And it would be irresponsible (laughs) to suggest that you could, which there is something funny about this movie. Like he's like, I mean, there's conditions that mean that he has to make it this way. But he's like, so focused on like sex and sexuality. And he's like, a performer in a brothel, and he becomes the leader of the revolution. Like there's something just absurd about it. Um, it's like, I always think it's funny how many Hollywood movies they have to go to a strip club in. Like how often do people just like break out, but visually you want to see naked people. <laughs> like we all want to see naked people. Right. So there's something, and there's also the conditions he has to make the film, you know, a porn film so that he can make it without union people. And yeah. in order to do that, porn films are the only films you can make without a union crew. Um, so he makes basically a porn film to use a majority non-white crew because non-white people weren't allowed in the unions and the guilds, right? So there's these conditions that mean he has to make it. But there is something sort of absurd about the story that I think is, you know, what Lerone Bennett is hitting on. But then on the other hand, Huey Newton and people, and obviously like a whole lot of people like him, like him, saw it and saw in it 
this real articulation of black urban masculinity that was liberated and free. And that was something that just wasn't on the screen as your previous podcast show us like that just wasn't on the screen. So they're both things are kind of happening at once. This absurd story of this like porn performer who becomes like the leader of the revolution. And then this like, also this like intense new blackness, you know, I'm curious, just personally, do you remember the first time that you saw this film? And what did you think about it? Um, <laughs> I, I not only, well, so when I started writing my dissertation, they basically told me you can't write on this era of filmmaking. There's nothing good there. And I was kind of like, oh, and I went to my mom and I, my mom said to me, maybe they weren't seeing in those films what we saw because those films were good. And she was like, have you seen this film? And I hadn't. So then I managed to get a copy of it back in the days of VHS cassettes and I watched it. And honestly, it blew my mind. Just um, I didn't. Black exploitation is very formulaic and this film is not. So I just was not prepared for it on any level. And I think I had a similar reaction as the audiences at the time. And that I felt like I was seeing something completely new and that wasn't represented. And I just, I thought it was just mind blowing and great, honestly, the first time I saw it, which was probably in my early twenties. That's amazing. It, in the, um, the special feature on the Criterion release of uh, of the Melvin Van Peebles Criterion disc, uh, which you are on, uh, you say you have this quote, and you say, "Every impulse in black filmmaking can be traced back to Sweet Sweetback." What do you yes, mean by that? Without a doubt, without a doubt, I really think this era—not only this film, but Cotton Comes to Harlem, which is Ozzie Davis in 1970, uh, also Shaft, which is also 1970. Um, Gordon Parks. Um, I really think it lays the blueprint for our ideas of visual blackness. Um, and really post the Sidney Poitier era, people wanted to see black culture represented and not just white ideas of black culture, but actual black culture. And that's what this film does. And it also has this incredibly empowered, you know, black masculinity at its center. Yeah. I, I think, um, it seems to be that a, a big part of what um, Huey Newton was focusing on is this incredible choice of that Van Peebles makes, which is to show uh, Sweet Sweetback seeing the two cops violently beat this activist, Mumu, and he chooses to fight back. Now, in that same Criterion interview, you talk about this scene in comparison with the disturbing video of George Floyd's murder. Can you share a little bit of your thoughts about this juxtaposition? I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people don't know the Black Panther Party also starts in response to the killing of a teenager who was, I'm blanking on his name, but he was running from the police and he was 16 years old and they shot him in the back and it was ruled justified. So police brutality is a really, it's a really pervasive and ongoing issue. And Black Lives Matter put the videos of the violence so much in into mainstream America. And we now have the ability to capture those videos. And obviously in a way we didn't um, early, in earlier eras. Um, it just pr presents a counterpoint to like being beaten to death. Like, I don't know if you watched the Tyree Nichols video. There's something really <laughs> like totally debilitating and disempowering even just watching that these films provided a kind of counterpoint to the visual of 
black degradation in the United States. These films provided another vision and another possibility of what black people could do, what liberation liberation from that kind of violence would look like and feel like. And I think you really get that in Sweet Sweetbacks in a way you almost don't in the other black exploitation era films because it's so raw. Like the number of way I would describe that film is raw. It seems that to me that Sweetback, and I, I hadn't thought about this until reading your book, that Sweetback almost seems to um, kind of tie together or present this like dot on the graph, like between the Black Panthers and the Black Arts Movement. And it brought the rawness of that revolutionary spirit into this aesthetic presentation that was both avant-garde and yet also kind of classical. Would you agree with that? 100%, yeah. I think that's a brilliant way to describe it. Um, Because I think there's a certain way that, um, I mean, the film, he didn't have much money and he didn't, but he, what he had was this creative spark and actually quite a lot of training at at this point. And he really just, he employed everything he could, like, especially the genius to get earth, wind and fire. You know what I mean? When they're virtually unknown, like he just employed everything he could to get this really like raw, authentic black cultural feel to it. And, but it also, he had all this training in Europe and stuff at this point. So, yeah. And I think that's also, it is forgotten. Or if you just see the film sort of without context and without knowing his story, you might just think that like a lot of the choices made are sort of accidental or like maybe he didn't know what he was doing. But like, I think you, you, you bring up his training is really important because he would vociferously defend that everything he did was intentional. Right. And, that this was nothing was accidental in this movie, which I just love. And it's, it's just incredible to think that he was so consciously making so many choices in this film. And I also think, you know, like Gil Scott Heron, it was, I think around, yeah, it was 1970 where he d- does this famous, the revolution will not be televised. There's this like kind of idea that politics should be pure and away from media culture and Van Peebles and a lot of these people, Gordon Parks, they just don't buy that, you know? And I think in a certain way he captures the feeling of the moment, but he also puts this like revolutionary spirit into film that wasn't there, that comes from blackness, that comes from the fugitive nature of blackness, right? Like we're always running and, you know, and he puts that really into the film. Yeah. That raw idea of liberation and emancipation. Yes. Like that you create from your own hands, you know, like you're, he's peeing on his wound in the desert. You know what I mean? Your own body creates your freedom. Like that's a really, you know, powerful kind of script. Another um, aesthetic choice that you talk about in your book is the power of the gaze of both the audience watching the film and then seeing the characters watching as well. And um, this is something that, Melvin uses a lot throughout the film. Now, what do you mean by the gaze and what is its significance in Sweet Sweetback? Well, I think Du Bois talks about, you know, in that famous essay where he talks about um, the color line and all this, he talks about black people being aware, double consciousness, this idea that you're aware of what mainstream culture wants from you and you're always living in response to the knowledge of that. Whereas mainstream culture isn't really thinking about you except how it creates you and that kind of double consciousness i think these movies not only him but even a kind of lesser filmmaker like rudy ray moore i think they're always very aware of the fact that they're working 
with an already set visual script of blackness. And so they're aware of black people's sense of being surveilled, but also also watching. And I think that's a really interesting tension that's not in a lot of films. So you get a lot of scenes of people, you're watching people watching people, right? Like there's a lot of scenes like that in all of these films actually. Um, And I think it's a really interesting like acknowledgement of double consciousness, this idea of always being aware of what society expects from you and having to build your sense of self in relationship to that. Now, of course, Sweet Sweetback is not considered the first black exploitation film that Honor would, like you mentioned, go to 1970s Cotton Comes to Harlem, directed by Ozzie Davis and based on the novel by Chester Himes. Uh, but as you note in your book, between you know, roughly 1970 and 1975, there are approximately 70 feature length black action films, either by Hollywood studios and often using African-American production and distribution staff for the first time, or by new independent African-American production companies. How did the black power movement and the black arts movement respond to this sudden explosion of commodified representation? Um, I think there's a lot of anxiety about it. Even like Huey Newton devotes a whole paper, a whole one of the Black Panther papers to talking about Sweet Sweetbacks and how important it is as a revolutionary film. Um, So there's an acknowledgement of the importance of popular culture. But again, there's a kind of suspicion about the commodification of Black culture, like a knowing suspicion. Um, so I think some of the stuff wasn't taken as seriously as it could have been. And also there's kind of a counter movement in cinema with people like Charles Burnett um, and the um, UCLA filmmakers who kind of work against what they see in black exploitation as being a commodification in a bad way. Um, I would like to see the films more kind of talked about in relationship to each other rather than black exploitation versus, you know, the UCLA, you know, LA revolution filmmakers. Um, but um, I think that there's a certain way in which black exploitation can sometimes suffer under the idea that it was an overtly and dangerously commodified representation of black culture. You mentioned earlier how in writing your dissertation, you were discouraged from writing about black exploitation cinema on the basis that I, you know, I guess it wasn't worth writing about or whatever. Um, I just recently watched Blackula for the first time. And I fully admit that my entire, I'd known it existed my entire life, but I always just sort of was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Black Dracula schlock. I get it. And just like wrote it. I've like, I already have seen this movie in my head. And then you watch it and it's it's so much more nuanced than that. There's so much more going on. What what would you argue is the value as just particularly to a modern audience of watching these black exploitation era films? You know, the weird thing is I think that there's a kind of renaissance in mainstream culture in thinking about this era. But I think black people never stopped watching these movies. You know what I mean? And I think partially because they're in dialogue with Blackula in a certain way is in dialogue with this like fears of integration and fears of what it means to interact, you know, with white culture. Ganja and Hess is, I think, a brilliant, if we're talking about black vampires, (laughs) it's brilliant, right? Other level. And there's a kind of contestation, does it belong in black exploitation or not? But I mean, all of these kind of present this kind of, all these films kind of, Think about the problems that Black people faced. Even a film like Coffee, um, which is honestly one of my favorites, it's about like addiction and what do you do with it 
addiction and how do we as a community deal with people who behave in ways that are reprehensible based on addiction? You know what I mean? So there's all these kind of meditations and the things that black people actually think and care about as ridiculous as some of the premises of these movies can be. There's also a kind of dialogue about what it means to be black in a post great migration world, you know, in a world where we're living in these urban industrial kind of wastelands, you know, like, what does blackness mean? What is, how can, how can it help us to negotiate, like, falling employment, like, all these, like, incarceration, all these problems that black people face. So I don't think black people ever stopped watching them. I know for a fact they were always available. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, for sure. You could always get these movies on the bootleg or whatever in black <laughs> right. communities. Now, you write about, about, the, about the genre, um, you say, quote, the genre focused intensely on an omnipotent, omnipresent African-American masculinity, a specifically limited masculinist version of black power. But this is not necessarily indicative of the movement as a whole, specifically of the Black Panthers, correct? Yeah, no, the black, as I said, um, black, the Black Panthers were, the membership at many times was primarily women. But um, they were interested in this project of reconstructing black masculinity. So it became a sort of, in, in some ways, I feel like they, they were, they're viewed as less nuanced than their politics actually were. They had a lot of women in power um, and they were very sophisticated vis-a-vis feminism um, the Black Panthers were one of the first groups to sh- to show solidarity with homosexuals, like with the gay rights movement, which was also jumping off in the Bay Area around the same time. Huey Newton wrote a statement saying that homosexuals were pro- possibly the most re- revolutionary Americans, right, before when it was still considered like a mental illness and a crime in many areas in the United States. That's incredible. So they were very forward thinking around gender and things like that in ways that they don't get credit for because they were so aligned with this idea of reconstructing black masculinity, which was about showing black men having power and being empowered. That's really interesting. And it does, you know, I, I, I think my initial sort of like, deeper understanding of the Panthers um, uh, started from watching the Agnes Varda documentary. And she really shows that in such a great light, this massive female membership. And it's probably why she was interested in the first place in making the film. But also they made men like with the free breakfast program, they, they had men serving breakfast to kids, you know, and like, like men were also defying gender roles within the organization in ways that weren't represented in the larger kind of publicity for the, organization like they're in a certain way they were re they were critical of the nuclear family and things like that in ways that were very forward thinking at the time and they were critical of gender roles in certain ways at the way they operated you know but um in terms of this like broader script of like the brother on the block and all that it was kind of limited now could you would you say that there was a specific um political cultural force or was it purely an economic force that sort of brought an end to the black exploitation era of cinema in roughly 1975? Um, I think that, I mean, that's a complicated, like what, you know, you're a film historian. So like what really <laughs> ends eras, like it's always a variety of forces, but sure. they kind of ma- created like a really limited formula and then played it for all it was worth. And people got tired of it. And also the, um, Ed Guerrero, the film scholar Ed Guerrero, talks about how studios figured out that the 
biracial buddy movie would bring in both black and white audiences. So certain in certain ways that they transitioned to that because they could they're always looking for bigger audiences. Right. So in the 80s, that kind of took over. You know, so all those like Eddie Murphy, 48 hours type movies took over because black people, you could still see authentic blackness vis-a-vis Eddie Murphy, but it would also appeal to whites. You know what I mean? So I think the buddy rise of the buddy mo- blockbuster buddy movie, the um, kind of overuse of a simple formula of black exploitation, it just got tired, you know, but I still think that the ways in which they craft the black image is still what we're left with. You know what I mean? So black exploitation ends, but I don't think its influence has ended to this moment, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like um, just to kind of wrap this up, I mean, what do you think is that legacy of black exploitation and black representation from this era? Well, you know, I'm working on a piece right now looking at the movie Tougher Than Leather, which was kind of one of the early hip hop movies with um, Run DMC, because Run DMC quickly became the breakout hip hop act. But if you watch that movie now, and it's kind of hard to watch it because they've, I'm not going to say they suppressed it, but I think there's a lot of reasons they don't want it seen because a lot of the language and stuff is really a bit shocking. Like they call rap nigger pop music, for example, um, yeah. <laughs> like repeatedly. Okay. Um, they use their very liberal use of the N word by people who are not black in that movie. But um, all right, yeah. which is in keeping with the era, because that's where when I was like, you know, yeah in my early twenties and that's how people talk, but it's a bit shocking now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm talking about tougher than leather to say like, it's a transition movement movie from black exploitation to what we have now. And so if you watch that movie, it is basically a black exploitation movie, but I think it lays the blueprint for hip hop movies and hip hop. Basically its roots are very easily and very cleanly in black exploitation. So basically everything we see out of hip hop is defined by black exploitation. In my opinion, even when people don't know it and aren't self-aware about it. So someone like Snoop Dogg can be very self-aware that, you know, without Rudy Ray Moore, he would not exist. But, and, um, Notorious B.I.G. took his name from a, a black exploitation movie and stuff like that. Like the early like 90s hip hop was very self-conscious about their roots in black exploitation. But even when people are not self-conscious about it, the blueprint for what black masculinity, black language, um, black vernacular dance, like all these things are laid out by black exploitation. So until the, the supremacy of hip hop ends, I don't think black exploitation's legacy will ever end as well. Wow, that's amazing. I have not seen Tougher Than Leather, and I did not know that about Notorious B.I.G. That is <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah, Biggie Smalls is a black exploitation character. That's great. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you come here to learn. That's, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, the book is Spectacular Blackness, The Cultural Politics of the Black Power Movement and the Search for a Black Aesthetic. Um, Amy, where can people find you and learn more about your work? You can find me through my university. Um, University of Portland probably is the best way. Again, Spectacular Blackness, incredible book. If you want to learn more about this, we have just barely scratched the surface. Uh, This book is so fascinating and I learned just so much from reading it. So thank you to everyone for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. (laughs) 